Hello and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Claudia, part of the committee, and today I'm thrilled to be introducing the wonderful Christine Lunens speaking to Nikki McDonald. From Parisian model to best-selling author, Christine talks about her extraordinary life and work. What was it like to have her novel, Caging Skies, so successfully adapted into the Academy Award-winning Jojo Rabbit? Plus, we get a sneak peek into her next novel. The conversation was recorded at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival, an annual weekend of wonderful writers and curious audiences in beautiful Marlborough. For now, please enjoy Christine Lunens speaking to Nikki McDonald. And uh, welcome to this session of the Marlborough Book Festival with Christine Lennons. I'm Nikki McDonald and I'm going to be your host for this afternoon. There will be questions at the end of the session, probably 10 minutes before at the end of the, quest of the session, and a book signing and an opportunity to buy books outside at the end. So uh, yes, get, get your questions ready for, for Christine after the, after the session. Now, Christine Lennons is a Kiwi-Belgian writer based in Nelson. She came to writing via a modelling career in Paris, a master's degree in English and American literature at Harvard, and a PhD from Victoria University. Her books, Primordial Soup, Caging Skies, and A Can of Sunshine, have been translated into more than 20 languages. And in 2019, Caging Skies was adapted by Taika Waititi into the Oscar-winning movie Jojo Rabbit which you're probably all familiar with. Um, Christine, I want to start with um, Caging Skies, in which you know, good Hitler youth-going Austrian boy Johannes discovers that his parents are hiding a Jewish girl, Elsa, in the house. I think the story was inspired by uh, the experience, actually, of a, of a woman that you met, a French woman that you yes. met. Yes. Can you explain a little bit about her story and how you came, came across her? Okay, so when I was in France, I was in my 20s, and I became um, friends with a lovely elderly woman. And it was an odd friendship now, I realized, looking back, because she was, you know, at the time 70, but I found her life so interesting, and we just, you know, stayed friends for the rest of her life. And she told me um, that her, she was divorced, and then she told me the story one day. She said her father, who, um, well, her father who was involved in the war effort, he had actually at home hiding a, a Jewish man. He was a Polish refugee, and the family had kept him behind a wall. And she became intrigued with him, you know, who's this man behind the wall, and they would talk to each other through the wall. And then um, I thought that was a beautiful story. She said that after, though, they fell in love and they got married, but then the father wasn't happy because though he was happy to give him refuge in the home, he didn't want his daughter, who was Catholic, to marry someone who was Jewish. And it ended up in divorce because um, he had lost everyone and he was very troubled and the relationship just didn't work out. Um, but she had three lovely children, you know, from that marriage and that was... I guess he left her one day for the Polish house cleaner, um, which had broken her heart. But um, I guess they could relate to each other, you know, the hardship. And she had come into France as a refugee herself. And um, so that was her story. 
So when I was looking for a theme for Caging Skies, that kept going in my mind. And I thought, you know, to have someone in your house and how would you feel to have someone who's protected but is also like a prisoner? Mm. But then I wanted to change some things around and I thought that would be really interesting if it was a woman, young woman, and actually the, the person who discovers her is someone in the Hitler youth and then that would challenge all his beliefs and everything he's been taught. So it would be causing war basically in the family. Mm. I mean, obviously, when you were writing this, it was, well, it was published in sort of 2008. I mean, there have been so many books written about the war. Yes. And I think your agent even said to you, you know, I mean, goodness, who is going to read another book about the, the war, Christine? I mean, what did you think that you could bring that was going to make it different, that it was... Um, well, first, I wanted to show how actually it happens, how a country, because Germany was extremely educated at the time, how could, um, you know, if you look at the artists who were there and prominent at the time and the singers and uh, the art and the writers and philosophers, it's actually incredible to think a Germany like that could become what it became as fast as it did. And I wanted to explore how actually that happened and how they went into the schools and indoctrinated the children, what they taught these children and how they got people, basically they taught them to hate and to have no empathy for other people and they got themselves to feel that they were, you know, completely superior. So I thought, and, um, and it's funny because the book's been translated in many, many countries, but never in Germany. And one of the, someone told me maybe it's still very sensitive because this one touches upon the children and upon the education system. Mm -hmm. And that's been a sore point because I could never, I wanted to write a little poem at the beginning of the book, but I could never quite find a way to do it. So I, I ended up just giving up. What I was trying to express was that it's absolutely tragic all the people who lost their lives during the war and of course, those were the true victims. But I, I wanted to say there was a kind of lesser victim who didn't lose their lives, but who lost their innocence and maybe the whole kind of natural joy that children have to care about each other. So somehow that was stamped out of them by adults who should have been responsible, mm. you know, for these children. How do you feel about the fact that since you wrote it, you know, it was in the sort of decade or 13 years yeah. that, that have um, passed that we've seen a you know a, a massive rise in the kind of alt right across the the world and and you know, that there is this resurgence of hate if you like yeah I'm completely shocked by that because I really wrote it just as a testimony so people never forget because I thought as the generation um, who had known the war starts to pass away and less and less people know. I thought it's important to pass that information mm. on, but I never thought, nor did I ever want it to become, you know, relevant to that my children are going to have to face a, a world where, you know, this is coming back. And, you know, I tried sometimes thinking a little bit about it, and um, Sasha Baron Cohen actually wrote a very good and quite serious article on it, saying, can you imagine if Goebbels had had as propaganda, you know, online resources to reach out to all these mm. people, what that could have done and the reach it could have had today. And I thought that was quite frightening because it was a time where I think before everything went online, if you had in a community the odd person who would say something, I know one time in France, um, someone said a comment and that was racist and just everyone, the cousins and everyone pounced on them. How could you say such a thing? And he was a bit surprised. But as now people can find other people who think like they do online and it's mm. less communicating necessarily with the community, but just clicking some ideas online and 
and finding a whole another group who give propaganda, that's quite frightening. And I think it has given a rise, definitely politically, that's been seen. And of course, these are the kinds of um, hotspots for the right. And then, you know, not unsurprisingly, that's where they start to say, okay, let's make a translation of your book then. You know, mm -hmm. and you're thinking, okay, that means, you know, uh, Hungary or other places like that where they are far right. Okay, well, the... You know, and it's not something I'd hope for because, you know, that's no kind of world you really want to. You, you'd rather just see it as a historical piece that people read as history, not something that's, that's relevant. Mm. I mean, you grew up in the States. You have an Italian mother, a Belgian father. You're married to a Frenchman. I mean, is, <laughs> is there anything, is there any Jewish heritage in there or in, is there any personal link for you in terms of that sort of war experience? Um, so Jewish, um, so... Um, it was my grandfather who had um, very dear friends. He was an artist, and his closest friends were Jewish artists mm. at the time in Paris. So we, being a Catholic family, have had very close friendships over generations of time with, um, you know, with old-time families and things. So it was very, very hard. My um, grandfather was, uh, he, he was taken into a... Um, what do you call it, a prisoner of war camp. And mm -hmm. he actually had to make ammunition and things from metal. So when he came out, he began to always do things with metal with his hand. But it was something he never accepted because he lost his Jewish friends and it really hurt him to have to do ammunition for the enemy. And mm -hmm. it, it was very hard. So um, I guess having had um, also a lot of Jewish writers that I was close to, plus friends and things, it, it just... I, it's something that just always outraged me. And maybe one of the books, Anne Frank, even when I was young, I was her age when I read the book. And I felt quite close to her, you know, mm. in a lot of things she said. So it just, it's something I've become, you know, a lot older than there. Now I could be her mother, <laughs> you know. Then uh, even now I saw how she was as a teenager, as a much older woman. And I, I always feel that we really lost something, uh, the world, by, you know, the, this... Um, fanatic and all the people who followed him we really lost such such uh, good people mm. you were living in Normandy I think when you were kind of writing the book and, mm. and researching it can you talk a little bit about the research process and, oh. and how you went about that yes of course so um, my husband just happened to have been um, so he was the cultural director of the Memorial Museum for Peace as it was then called in Normandy so they had a mediatek and they had a library and you know that's where I did most of my uh, research there so I had a, a, a plane hawker typhoon flying overhead and I had the soundtrack of the bombs you know every 10 minutes and it was interesting because later when I saw the film and things and when it it was, you know, even as a play, I heard the, you know, the bombing soundtrack and it brought me right back to when I was first starting and doing the writing. And it was quite moving to think, you know, I had done it with the soundtrack and now here's the soundtrack. And a lot of the images that I had actually seen in the book when I saw the film, you know, with the Nazi banners hanging down from the city hall, that came from, you know, the kind of photography I had seen in the booklets. And it seemed amazing that this had almost come out and then there it was again, you know, on the, on the stage. I mean, how did you concentrate, though, with this kind of constant yeah. bomb noise or did you yeah. eventually zone it out? Yeah, I had to just zone right. it out because it was just there and then, you know, I still... Um, I still heard it. And then it was a funny thing because when Disney took it over, at first they were saying, um, you know, Disney's very cautious because Disney took over the Searchlight production, which was called Fox Searchlight at the time. And they were saying, okay, you know, a film um, 
with Hitler and everything, this wasn't exactly, you know, Disney and um, <laughs> Disney's a little bit nervous about this. And actually, then I pointed out, well, what I had seen when I was doing my research, look at this Disney cartoon where Donald Duck is playing Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, wow. uh, and I brought out this whole footage, and then suddenly it was okay with Disney. You know, <laughs> if to help the war effort, Donald Duck himself was able to, you know, be the Führer and do he he and hide Hitler. <laughs> Taika then was very welcome to be also doing that many years later. That's amazing. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, why did you see the book in Austria rather than in Germany? Um, I think because I knew Vienna better, and because Vienna was. Um, and it still is today, a very cultural city where there's a lot of music and it just seems incredible that a city that's so cultural and, you know, a place where you had psychology and Freud and musicians, you know, that even they would have been taken mm. in by this. So. Was the character of Johannes kind of based on any one person or any experiences <laughs> that you read? Or? A, a little bit. So I did read a lot of... Um, research about people who had been in the Hitler Youth, and I actually talked to some elderly people at the time who had been themselves, um, you know, involved in the Hitler Youth. And I found that very moving because they were the ones who told me of their experience. In fact, one thing that was strange is this, the scene in the, in the film where they're killing rabbits, that was really what happened. They were killing rabbits, but to protect the man's identity, I actually changed rabbits to ducks. And I used the name Johannes, but I never had them use the man's nickname, Jojo. Um, he's since passed away, but it was, I get Taika's screenplay and it says Jojo Rabbit. And I think these were two things I was trying to protect and I changed in my novel. And it was almost as if, you know, that came down and that was... But did, he, but did Taika, so Taika didn't know? That, no, that, oh, it was wow, just two bizarre. things that I had gone to protect and then it's Jojo Rabbit. Oh my gosh. Yes, of course, so many years had gone by, yeah. you know, since then. So. I mean, the first half of Caging Skies is arguably quite hopeful. You know, it's it's a kind of a coming-of-age story. It's the process of Johanna's understanding that the dogma that he's learned, uh, you know, at, um, at Hitler Youth or at school when, you, when you're actually presented with a, a human face to yeah. that, that it's actually much more, diff you know, it's more complicated and it's more difficult to, to hate. But then it gets very dark. When <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because, you know, then it kind of becomes about power and control I mean why did you I guess why do you have those two halves if you, if you like uh, of that I guess what I had happened was in the novel I thought to myself I'm going to have Johannes lie to her and say we lost the war so he can keep her and actually part of it he really did does want to protect her because when he sees everything else that happened to the Jews and the Hitler youth boys were actually made to go look at the extermination trains and they were made to look at all the bodies and you know the American soldiers made each of them you know go look and this is what you were doing um, so after seeing that, on the one side, he wanted to protect her and always just keep indoors as if the world were a very dangerous place out there. At the same time, he has feelings, so he does naturally want to just, you know, keep her to himself. Um, having lost his mother, you know, during the, during the war for having protected her. Um, and so he kind of forces love on her and tries to keep her. But it's, it's a fine balance because in the book... Um, 
there's a moment where we start to doubt that she knows more, but she feels guilty mm. too because she knows that he saved her and she feels that she probably wouldn't have done what his mother had done, you know, if she had been put in the same situation. So she has a kind of um, war guilt or, or survivor guilt that many of the Jews actually did have after feeling guilty that they survived, you know, um, and other people didn't. So it does get very, um, it, it is dark. It does explore, you know, these these corners of um, of a dark time. So, and and Taike, he told me when when we first met, he told me where he would bring it, and he said if I was going to do the whole, if he were to do the whole thing, it would have to be a, a series, you know, with about twelve episodes. So, because that's uh, part of the reason that I asked, because that is where he cuts it, right? So, yeah. he, so he effectively cuts. If, if you've seen Jojo Rabbit, that effectively cuts the book in half. So, you know, the film kind of finishes at the point, well, he, he lies yes. about the war, you know, the war's ended and he lies that they that they have won because he doesn't want her to leave. But yeah. then he relents. Quite soon after. Yeah, the for and a few it. days. Yeah, exactly. So just a few days and then that's it. Whereas in the book, this period goes on longer, so he has to live with the lie. And there are times he wants to tell her, but um, he's afraid he's going to lose her. She doesn't really want him to tell her. And so it goes into, you know, the, the relationship. So how do you feel about the character of Johannes, you know, at the end of the book? And, you know, as the writer, because, you know, as a reader, I'm, you know, you kind of taken on this journey of empathy and then you, yeah, then he disappears into this dark corner of kind of power and control. I mean, as the author, how yeah. do you feel about this complex character um, at the end? That's interesting because a lot of the, I've read some more um, books recently, and I won't name any titles, but there are uh, books that take place in uh, World War II, actually sometimes in concentration camps. And they're very much what I would call the feel-good novel. And it's full of everyone has nothing but love and empathy, though each person's hungry and each person, you know. And it's not true. When you've read Primo Levi and you've spoken to people and you know what the conditions, it's just completely fake. That's not reality. And the reality of it is then when people have gone through what they did during the war, they're damaged. They're very, very damaged emotionally, psychologically. And this continues for a couple generations before actually, because the one who was involved in that, even they have some issues that, you know, then their children pick up. And it takes a little while before it can um, uh, go away to some extent. So I did have the characters be more damaged but I felt that was true to the era and true to really what they had gone through. And I felt it wouldn't be truthful to make it completely, you know, the happy ending mm -hmm. at the end, because that's just not what happens to people in reality. Mm. Tell me how the film adaptation came about. I mean, how do these things happen? Does Taika get on the phone and say, Christine, <laughs> I like your, like, your, like your book. Do you want, <laughs> shall I make a movie? Yeah. Um, so I had an email first and we agreed to meet. Um, so we met in Wellington and I, I was feeling a little bit, um, I, well, put it this way, when we met each other, we, 
were both instantly relieved because I thought he was going to have, you know, in, in Europe, when someone's a f film director, they can, you know, have a high opinion of themselves. And he thought the same thing. He thought I might come in here thinking, oh, she's the author. And actually, we just saw we're very normal, nice, gave a hug. And, and one of the funny things, we met at Victoria University, and um, Bill Manhire very kindly lent me his office. And Taika came in. He looked at the beautiful view from... Um, Bill's office, and he kicked back in Bill's, you know, chair and put his feet on the <laughs> desk. <laughs> and he's like, hmm, not too bad. <laughs> and then now I know him quite well, Taika. So there's one thing that happened, and I'm sure knowing him now, he did it on purpose. So they kindly came and gave us a cup of tea. And then um, as we're sitting there in that moment before talking, Taika kept pulling out a hair out of his tea, and it keeps being like really long. And now I, I was thinking the other day when I see him, I have to ask, was there really a hair in your tea, or were you just being funny? <laughs> so we just started to talk, and then um, he started to tell me. He, what's amazing is what he told me, the way the film would be that day was the way the film would be, you know? Because how did he pitch it? Because I interviewed him in 2014 and he said, oh, yeah, no, I, I could ask him what he was, what he was doing next. So I'm writing, writing a Hitler comedy, <laughs> at which point, obviously, I thought it was completely insane. Yeah. So, I mean, how did, he, how did okay. he pitch it to you? Okay, so he said he'd be focusing, you know, on the part where Johannes is younger and that... Um, you know, he had to have a scar, but he still had to have the cute factor for the film to work, you know, and there were, um, you know, he had very, very clear ideas. Um, he, there was the character of Hitler, but he never thought he would be doing Hitler himself. And I still okay. remember one day when, you know, he was trying to find the actor for Hitler, and at some stage I wrote a very delicate email. I said, listen, please don't take this the wrong way, but I could really see you as Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. I didn't realize yeah, that. So yeah, you were so responsible for him being no, Hitler. <laughs> no, he said it was after because I guess he just, you know, that like, no. <laughs> and it was actually apparently Searchlight who thought the same thing. So I guess they said, you know, well, you know what you have in mind. Why don't you do it? So, you know, everyone could see him. And I guess at some stage he thought this is kind of crazy. But, and I thought he did a very... Um, a, a good job. Apparently his mother came on the set and she said, you know, you look great. <laughs> <laughs> because it was actually his mother that was responsible for getting him to read Caging Skies, yes. isn't that right? Yes. And he told me that um, it, it really was um, Robin Cohen. So she, he told me she kept coming at him with the book and she said, you've got to read this book, you've got to. And he says, no, I'm busy. I've got other things to do. And she kept saying, and finally one day he said, she actually put the book there and he saw, oh, that's thick. No, I, I don't have time. And then finally he said, after about eight months, he read the book, but he said, I'm just going to read a few chapters in his mind so his mother would leave him alone. Oh, yeah. So he goes, and he said he knew after, you know, already 10 pages, two chapters that, it, you know, and he was very, very um, sweet at the Oscars because he took his mother and he put one arm around her and he put one arm around me and he said, these are the two women who got me my Oscar. <laughs> it was very touching. Yeah. So do you have, I mean, as the author, do you have any involvement in the filmmaking process? Um, he did ask, you know, for each time he sent me the... Um, he would send me the screenplay and where he was at. And I do want to make a little comment. When There was a moment when the film went and it premiered in um, Toronto. And it was an interesting thing because I was still in Nelson and I was following online. So I, I could see, you know, everything's online these days. So I could see 
what time they went in, what they were doing the interview, and I saw what time they went out. And then all these um, reviews start popping up that first evening. But it was incredible because they had just come out of the theater and it was within 15 minutes a review popped out and the review was about, you know, this long, perfect <laughs> English. And I thought to myself, they couldn't have seen the film. And, you know, they were really slamming the film. So actually, when I went to sleep the first night after the premiere, I thought to myself, Taika's going to hate me and his mother <laughs> for having done this because the reviewers were so, so harsh initially. And interestingly, one of the events I went to, we had, um, it was the scriptural award at the libraries. There was a journalist across from us um, and I was just telling a little bit the story and I could see the journalist wasn't quite comfortable and I was saying it was almost as if, you know, they had an agenda or something. Anyway, I found out later as we were leaving, that was one of the journalists who had done that particular article that was 15 minutes later and he was trying to get another film that was... Uh, you know, oh, okay. yeah, and oh. was friends with that. So it was almost, right. but it was nice because in any case, it's like I say, with any book or with any film, it's normal. Um, my husband and I don't like the same um, books and we don't necessarily always like the same film. Whenever you do a book or a film, I think it's a very healthy thing that some people love it and some people don't. Some people, they find it so-so. Other people hate it. I think it's what makes it interesting because we're each different. And in the end, I find it more enriching somehow mm -hmm. like that because you know that when people really do like it or, you know, engage with it, well, they really do. And you're trying to yeah. actually reach out with those people. And if other people don't, that's okay. Because like I said, I love my husband and he sometimes yeah. hates books that I really love. <laughs> were you nervous about the result though? I mean, obviously, Taika is known for his comedic work and darkly comedic sometimes. Right. But, I mean, Caging Skies is, is not a comedy. Were you worried about the um, after, comedic twist? Well, no, because when I saw Boy... I was, I don't know how other people felt, but when I saw Boy, I was extremely moved. And though I admit I laughed during it, it's a film that stayed with me and the situations, and it's, it's funny, but it's heartbreaking. And um, when my kids go to college or to um, intermediate school, I see other kids and I know what they're going through. So it's funny, but I think the laughs come at a cost. You laugh, but something mm. in you says that's not really funny, and that's what he was trying to do here. So I thought he was using comedy in a way that could help make it engaging um, to an audience, but that people would still understand that underneath it, this isn't funny. What they're teaching this boy isn't funny, mm. and what's happening here isn't okay at all. I think when he sent you the screenplay, he said, it's still your baby, it just has different clothes. Yeah. I mean, do you agree with that? Is that how you feel about it? Or how yeah. did you feel he about said, the screenplay? Yeah, so he said, it's your baby and it has different clothes. And I said, Taika, you did something with the hair. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was an interesting thing because I said to him, it had to be his. I saw a lot of film. There was The Goldfinch. I don't know if many people read that mm -hmm. book. And I, I really love the book. And when I knew Taika was actually going to Toronto with the Goldfinch, you know, which had had the Pulitzer Prize, I thought, ooh, bad timing. You know, this one's going to take everything away. But the fact is the um, director was very, very true to the book and there was a lot of voice off and things, but it didn't really um, adapt Work. fully into the other medium. Mm -hmm. And... And in the end, I, it, it struggled, you know, to, uh, to even make up one-fourth of the budget. And 
I think it's important that when a director does something, if you have trust, and I did love everything he'd done before, mm. I thought I just have to let him do what he has to do because I can't come and say, you have to film it this way or do this because if he doesn't really engage with that, what's the point? He's not going to like it. So I thought, let Taika be Taika. And then actually that worked out really well. And I feel that it's my book, but that he... Almost like I did a classical painting and he made a bit of a Picasso out of it. But, <laughs> but yeah, that there's something in that Picasso and I mm. like the Picasso. I mean, when did you first see the movie? What, what was your initial reaction? Um, so I was quite lucky. The producer who hails from Nelson, he grew up in Nelson, actually came to show it to me, my family, and to his mother and father who are in Nelson. Mm -hmm. So we had a private viewing at the Nelson um, State Cinemas. Oh, and, cool. um, and I was completely um, moved. You know, it was the first time I had seen. He'd explained it each time. So I knew uh, what was going on and what they had filmed and what they were keeping and what they were cutting out. So they kept me. But to actually see it for the first time and to see, you know, um, little Jojo's face like that. And, and it was very strange because when I actually went to meet the actors for the first time, one of the first things I saw is they were tiny. On screen, they looked so big and they were 10 and very small. And I'll never forget it was touching. They ran right up to me. They gave me a huge hug. They said, you're the author. They hugged me. And then they thought, they thought it was going to be like a JK Rowling. They said, when's the next one? <laughs> and I realized actually there's not going to be Caging Skies 2 and 3 and things like that. Aww. Yeah. And then the boy Yorkie, you know, the one who was the heavier boy, um, Jojo's friend, when he saw himself the first time, he began to cry. He was so moved. And it was quite touching to see. He said, it's just overwhelming. I can't believe, you know, <laughs> to see himself like that. So. Oh, so that must be amazing. Um, shall we do a re quick reading? Yes, if you like. Okay. So. So this um, passage takes place. It's um, part of the passages of everything that's changing when um, Johannes goes to school. So they've just changed um, teachers. So Fraulein Ram replaced her grassy. The reason, she explains, was many of the subjects he used to teach us, 90% of the facts he had made us struggle to memorize, were forgotten by adulthood and thus useless. All it did was cost the state money that could be better used elsewhere to the greater benefit of its people. We were a new generation, a privileged one. Hence, we would be the first to take advantage of the modernized program and learn subject those before us hadn't had the chance to learn. I felt sad for my parents and told myself that in the evenings I must teach them all I could. Now we learned far less from books than we had before. Sports had become our primary subject and we spent hours upon hours practicing disciplines to make us strong, healthy adults rather than pale, weak bookworms. My father was wrong. That man did concern little boys like me. He, the Führer, Adolf Hitler, had a great mission to confide in us children. Only we, children that we were, could save the future of our race. We were unaware that our race was the rarest and the purest. Not only were we clever, fair, blonde, blue-eyed, tall and slender, but even our heads showed a trait superior to all other races. We were doliocephalic, whereas they were brachycephalic, meaning the form of our heads was elegantly oval, while theirs was primitively round. I couldn't wait to get home to show my mother. How would she be proud of me? My head was something I'd never cared about before, at least not its form, and to think I had such a rare treasure sitting upon my shoulders. We learned new frightening facts, 
Life was a constant warfare, a struggle of each race against the others for territory, food, and supremacy. Our race, the purest, didn't have enough land. Many of our race were living in exile. Other races were having more children than we were and were mixing in with our race to weaken us. We were in great danger, but the Führer had trust in us, the children. We were his future. How surprised I was to think that the Führer I saw at Hedelplas, cheered by masses, the giant on billboards all over Vienna, who even spoke on the wireless, needed someone little like me. Before then, I never felt indispensable. Rather, I felt like a child, something akin to an inferior form of an adult, a defect only time and patience could heal. Mm, wow. Powerful stuff. And it's a terrible segue to go from there to uh, the Oscars, but um, (laughs) I do want to address that because you mentioned it um, last night, this kind of bizarre awards season that you obviously get drawn into um, when you become involved with um, a film. film. Tell me a little bit about the preparation. See, Christine made the terrible mistake of telling me just as we were chatting earlier a a fabulous story about trying to prepare for uh, for awards season before she left so now I'm going to make her retell retell it okay so one thing is I didn't know how many different awards there were so the first problem is I had to find a long dress and then I said to my husband listen I'm just going to wear the same dress and he said no that won't be professional he said because every photo that's going to come after you have to look like you had a different dress to look like it's at a different event So I said, okay, I knew exactly what I wanted. I was actually looking in the shops in Nelson and things, even bridal book, you know, places where they sell bridal clothes and online and everywhere. And I was looking for something that didn't seem to easily exist anymore. I didn't want anything here. I didn't want anything going down here. I didn't want any slit here, here, or here. So after a while, I gave up looking for long dresses and I put mother of the bride. Okay, then I put mother of the bride and woo. <laughs> and then I started to put modest mother of the bride. <laughs> and then finally with modest mother of the bride, I found uh, some dresses in Ukraine, you know, that went and, you know, covered me, you know, everywhere from head to foot. But then I still needed some shoes and a handbag because really I usually just write from home and I don't really see a lot of people. So, you know, my one pair of trousers and my one pair of sneakers weren't going to make magic in Hollywood. <laughs> So I go to a um, store, and I think I took two pairs of shoes and a handbag, which soon I had the ANZ Bank. I said this in a documentary. They were giving me a phone call, and they said, there's been some purchases that are very uncharacteristic of you. (laughs) You know, someone did the card. And I think because I was using my credit card, somehow... Facebook knew I was spending money on my appearance, and suddenly I started getting these ads of um, dating, you know, uh, websites for women my age, and my husband's almost saying, you know, what's going on there? (laughs) Do do you still love me? (laughs) So, and then even one anecdote, which they changed very quickly, it was, they have two things where all the news comes out in Hollywood. It's called the Hollywood Reporter or something else called Deadline. And I was speaking to a reporter over there, and I was just trying to explain, you know, my husband was working 
So my husband at the time was working at the Memorial Museum for Peace. What I meant is my husband, who's still my husband, 23 years old, was working at the time. But suddenly they put, they worded it differently that it sounded like it's not my husband anymore. <laughs> so quickly I sent an email and I get a huge apology. The Hollywood reporter wants to get its facts right and they immediately changed it, which was, whew, because the last thing I wanted is my husband to say, what's this in the Hollywood reporter? It's <laughs> together with on? the dating website. Yeah. It's yeah, not exactly. like it looks so when I did come home, I will say that when I went over there, it was, it was like another world. They actually sent me, because I think it's American, so they're responsible for you on a trip from the moment you step out of your house. So they would send me the driver in Nelson, you know, with a black oh. sedan. So it was really over the top, you know, to be brought to the airports and arriving, you know, have the car and have the driver. But um, what was funny is when I came back home, uh, basically, I had five machines of wash each time, and I, here I am, you know, going from Cinderella very fast <laughs> to the pumpkin again and clean the floor and cle clean the shower filter and <laughs> just four, four men on their own. Yes, so it was like a, a good contrast. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't have been entirely alien to you because obviously, you know, you in your past were very used to kind of dressing up and looking very glamorous and elegant as a Yes. Parisian f fashion model. Yes. I mean, how on earth did that come about? Okay, but wait, this is the big difference. When you did, so when I did fashion, and this was a long time ago, <laughs> I didn't have gray hair and everything, but when I did, I, I would do mostly print. So I would go in front and I'd have just usually one photographer. And then at the time it was, you know, basically it was the 80s. So it was at the time where it was just, you know, elegance. And basically my job was to put my hand like this, like this, turn <laughs> this way. And it was just one person taking the pictures and who would give me, you know, it was pre-internet too. So you had to be professional. You couldn't sit in a way that wrinkled the clothes because the wrinkles would show. There was no photoshopping there. And you had to be professional and know that your neck, when you turned it this way, would crease. So, you know, you do these movements. Anyway, not exactly feeling like I was at the top glamour of my time <laughs> at the time, you know, going over there. Suddenly, there was a lot of security, I remember, to get to the first premiere. And over there, they're also responsible for you. So I had a publicist with me all the time who I've become, you know, very good friends with since then. And so Anne would be with me every time I did an interview, which was a lot of pressure because she would be with me the whole day and I had to make sure I said the same thing a bit differently so she's not getting bored. But then when she brought me then to the premiere, there was a lot of security and because it was a delicate subject, they were afraid that the far right might try to do some kind of shooting. So there were a lot of um, German shepherds around and the FBI and codes and everything to get in there. And she said, you know, they're just very, very secure in case there's trouble. And so I get in, and the first thing I wasn't at all prepared for is the people from, I guess it is Getty Images or something, they have a lot of photographers. So there were maybe 50 photographers at the event. And I step out, and the flash goes all at once, 50 at once. And then they said, that's not something I'm used to. But then they had, I guess, my name on the production sheet. I'm not that famous. But all of a sudden, everyone's doing, Christine, 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 Christine. And I'm looking around like this scared rabbit, like, huh? <laughs> and that's how the pictures, those first show up. Okay, then I go off the podium, you know, a journalist, journalist, journalist TV, how do you feel, how do you feel? Okay, I go off. Then I'm with my publicist, Anne, and suddenly I hear, uh, it's like there's a huge fight. And I thought to myself, okay, that's it, someone from the, you know, there's a terrorist here, someone's about to do a shooting. There was screaming and boom, boom, boom. And I said, what's going on? 
And she said, oh, that's just Scarlett Johansson. She's arriving. So what I didn't realize is when Scarlett Johansson arrives, the journalists start to, I guess the picture's worth so much money that they all want to get that shot of her. Anyway, so I peek out from where I am and I watch her and she just, everyone's yelling, Scarlett, 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 and she just went slow motion. She went... <laughs> <laughs> so after that, did when you it take was, notes? I took <laughs> notes, and it was so I didn't. Do, mm. But when it was my turn next time, no panic. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like this, and this time my kids said after when they're looking, they said those pictures were much better. <laughs> so I had a good. That's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, how did you get from you know modelling to writing? It seems a pretty big uh, jump, yeah, pretty big is. leap. Um, I absolutely loved it because the the one problem with modeling, and I don't want to say, um, I want to be grateful for everything modeling did because it was thanks to modeling that I had actually the time that I could to write, you know, and I did get to travel and I did get to do, you know, a lot of uh, fun stuff. But what I found very, very frustrating about the modeling is it's just the physical appearance. And you know the mm. physical appearance isn't going to last and you don't feel like the physical appearance is really you. And for me, it was, um, it was just bizarre because when I was in intermediate school, I guess I looked normal enough as a kid, but then, you know, when I lost my baby teeth and my real teeth came out, I had, you know, I couldn't even close my mouth. My teeth were so much forward and I grew my height and I was quite skinny and my mother, you know, had my hair cut short. So let's just put it this way. There was a time I still remember where they were choosing teams for PE and it, when we were down to two, I'm saying, please pick me, please pick me in my head. And of course, I was the one that the team had to take, you know, with everyone like, ha, ha, ha. And within five years going from that, you know, my teeth got put back, my hair got longer. And then when I was doing my study, someone says, be in a modeling agency. So I had my first photos in Vogue. So the problem is I never took that very seriously. And I still remember a teacher who had given us a questionnaire and we were supposed to answer what would you want if you could have a wish? Would you want to be, and at the time, really, I had the teeth and everything. They said, would you want to be more attractive? Would you want more friends? Or would you want to be more intelligent? And I really remember we were living on the water at the time, and I looked at the water as if my life would depend on my answer. And I thought, I don't want to be more attractive because then my friends won't really be my friends. They'll just like me because of that. And then I thought, well, if I have more friends, I need, they're not real friends because I just wished it. So I thought I'd like to be more intelligent. <laughs> that, was my, that was my wish. And so it was a big relief when I was modeling. I just never took that seriously. I felt like I was dressing up and I did that. And then the moment it was over, I just, you know, I, I didn't value that, to put it that way. And so while other people or younger girls were taking that quite seriously, I remember I wanted to do something else and it was very important to me what you're really thinking and what you're really feeling. So writing was a, a huge relief, but I feel like I went from one extreme to another where one thing was just this way and then the other way, usually before it was the Oscars, no one even would know what I look like or care, mm. you know, mm. it's just what you're writing. So I went, you know, from almost pure spirits to... <laughs> You know, How so. do you find writing in New Zealand? Is it any more difficult, I guess, particularly when you're setting a book here? Um, you mean to, to be in New Zealand and to yeah, write? Yeah, to be in New Zealand and um, I think that's changing and I hope that's changing. I did find there was a little bit what I jokingly call a colonial attitude to New Zealand, which I didn't quite like. And I remember at first um, there was some discussion, you know, 
where people or publishers or agents would say, you should go to Australia and not to New Zealand. And, you know, as if it was just, you know, where, mm -hmm. where are you going? And that's a catastrophe for, you know, your career. And almost as if to publish, you would have to publish in, you know, in London. And it was, I was very proud that this was published in New Zealand. And then it made, you know, the kind of, and although Taika at first, they might be saying, okay, unknown director. Well, <laughs> unknown director. Well, look at that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so to show that, you know, that New Zealand is actually has, I find New Zealand has just as many, being such a small country, just as many great writers as the UK does. And I like to see now that, you know, that Hollywood has huge respect for New Zealand and that New Zealand has its stories and wonderful writers here and things are happening. We're not, we're second to none. You know, I don't find that there's the UK and New Zealand's here. Mm. And especially now that everyone, when I'm traveling, have such a respect for New Zealand. Um, even now, people who are still calling me from projects from um, the US, they just say we admire so much how, you know, this has been handled over there and they have nothing but praise for New Zealand. So, you know, I feel very proud. And mm -hmm. I think um, now the world's very aware of New Zealand and it's a good time. So. Your third book, um, A Can of Sunshine, was based, I think, on or, or perhaps grew out of your PhD yes. in creative writing, right. which was about... Um, the relationships between mothers-in-law and, and daughters-in-law. I yeah. mean, what a fascinating subject. What, what, what did you find? Tell me a little bit about what, what inspired that. Okay, so that was just, um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. I had actually an interesting um, PhD thesis because I wanted to study why every um, relationship, since you can go back in history and around the world, there's no country I could find where there's not tension between mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. So much so that in some African cultures, they don't allow them to be in the same huts, you know, at the same time. So <laughs> one has to leave before the other. And some have joking relationships, so they're allowed to tease each other as a way to just try to get the stress. And I wanted to understand why that, you know, why that was. So I, um, I started out just by studying, you know, what psychologists had written or sociologists, and then I got a good grasp, and then I wanted to speak to both mother-in-law and daughters-in-law to get both sides of the story, and that was quite exciting. Because I think initially I thought, this is very hard for the daughter-in-law, but I didn't realize how hard things were actually for the mother-in-law. And so, um, they would give me, you know, their side of the story, and I would understand. So, for example, I still remember one said... Um, we better change a little bit the wording here. Um, she used to do something with her son that was always, you know, very fun. So, um, and it was just kind of a family thing. And she was just doing this one time, what they'd always done after hiking, um, giving some kind of just little quick massage. And she said the daughter-in-law gave her a look almost as if, you know, this were weird. Why should she, you know, touch the sun? And she said suddenly what they had always done, mm -hmm. she had the gaze of an outsider and she had to change things, you know, to... And so there were all these... Uh, I mean, what did you find were... I should actually, just before we go on, declare that my mother-in-law is in the audience here <laughs> okay. and is absolutely lovely and there's yeah. nothing wrong with our relationship, so I'd just like to clarify <laughs> that right now. <laughs> but what did you find were the, you know, the biggest kind of points of, of tension? Okay, so what happens, it's usually the same kind of problem, but in many different ways. Mm -hmm. um, so what happens is there's an overlapping territory 
And it's a territory that the mother had been used to doing things her way, and she invested so many years and for either traditions or things to be the way they'd been. And then there's going to be change. And the daughter-in-law on her side had lived with her mother, so she wants things to be, you know, the way she wanted to do. Often it could be like her mother, not always, but often it's going to be different. And that's painful for the mother-in-law, um, you know, because she's... That was just her family, and it's and that's usually just over little things like that. So, for example, Christmas can be a big issue. Um, some people might have celebrated it on the 24th, and now are we going to celebrate it on the 25th? Mm -hmm. And so, it's just these little little things. It's very hard to see difference as not something that's threatening, mm. and so that's what happens. And, and it's usually sometimes over the smallest little things. So for example, I remember one daughter-in-law told me at some stage it was a quarrel, and it just had to do with um, pouring some milk for a jug. So she, she got up in the morning and she took some cereal, and then um, when it was, the sun came down, the mother said, oh, I'll get more milk now. And she said, oh, you should have told me that was all the milk. I wouldn't have taken it all. Anyway, it became tension over the milk. But I said, actually, what's happening here, it's not about the milk. It's about who everyone, I mean, where the role is. And mm -hmm. the mother had been used to, you know, being the self-sacrificial one, and she was keeping this. And so it was just a little bit hierarchy mm. like that at play. Just. But, uh, now but, I'm but, conscious but that women with the are the peacekeeper. Yeah, I just want to say, women are, right. as much as women can have this problem between mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, the funny thing is they're the peacekeeper and they're also the ones who remember each other's birthdays. What they don't know, <laughs> it's, it's usually the daughter-in-law who'll say, it's your mother's birthday. And it's, <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah. Now, conscious that time is progressing, and we did promise um, a sneak Question, peek yeah. into your new novel. So... Yeah. Um, You've done Hitler and Mothers-in-Law, so you thought you'd tackle something a little bit less controversial, like the Rainbow Warrior. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, yes. So, I felt I was actually in Paris and I, when I was 20, when the Rainbow Warrior event had happening. Actually, it was today. Today's the anniversary. It was the oh, 10th July. Oh. Yeah, funny. Um, and, gosh, that was... <laughs> and so... Um, and I remember it, you know, very distinctly. I felt I was the one, so it's not, the story's not about that, but it's in the background of the story. And okay. I felt I could approach this very delicate topic because my husband's French, hmm. but I'm Belgian, and I've been in New Zealand, and I've been in France, so I wanted to just, you know, present the time and put it at that era. And just... Uh, so what, it is, what has it been like writing that while you've been in New Zealand? Uh, it's been fabulous. Um, it's been a bit tricky because in the end, you know, I've slimmed it down, but there was, there was one piece of original research. There had been a, um, a, a small ketchup called the Vega, and the Vega went to protest the Mururua uh, testings, and this was in 1972 and 1973. And the French were trying to chase them, and at some stage they had sent something that was smaller and more maneuverable to go get them. And I kept trying to read um, Greenpeace books, but they hadn't identified what this was. And um, so they just said, and a boat and things. And I actually, I thought so much time has gone by now, I wanted to identify it. Well, my husband has family in the military. First, he had asked a historian from the museum and who put him in contact, and they said, that's still, how do they say, confidential. They can't give out that material. 
And I thought, come on, that's ridiculous. It's confidential. So my husband said, I'll put you in relationship with some of the cousins. And, you know, they're working and they'll tell you. And I said, there's no way I'm going to have someone risk their job to help me with this. So I went online and I kept trying and I kept trying. Then finally I called the, in New Zealand the person at the Naval Museum in, um, in Auckland. Mm. And he was able to identify. He said, that's a navette. Once I had the word of what it was, the kind, then I went online and I found that the French military have this website that's called, I'm trying to translate it, it's called for people who had been um, sailors before uh, in their past and they just try to keep touch with each other. And this website has several layers. You can read the posts, but if it's confidential, it goes deeper and deeper behind and you have to have a password. But this person who passed away five years earlier put what's happened to her and he put the navette, and it had the number. I called Anne Horn, and she gave me a picture that she, I managed, we managed to get bigger, and I had the identification number, and I said, that's it. We found it. There it is. I took about 100 screenshots, printed it, put in photo. I said, I found the, you know, I found. And it's not even in the novel, because actually I had to shorten it, so I went through all that oh, trouble. No. And now it just tells very quickly in one sentence, because, you know, it's not a history book. But I felt really happy having done the whole history there. And I felt happy because we came in New Zealand in 2006, and I feel like having done the history, you know, from 1972 onwards, Though I wasn't here, it, feel, it felt like I got to know a lot about New Zealand before I came and the changes, and that was really important so it's the, to me. The, so the book is set in New Zealand? Yes. Right, okay, one around chapter, the time yeah, of, one chapter of in the France, But the rest of the I time, think, okay. yeah. yeah. Can you tell us anything about the sort of plot, or is that um, revealing too much? It's, it's been described now um, as a messy love story. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Does that help? Um, and it's called In, in Amber's Wake. In Amber's Wake, right? And yes. when, so when is it coming out? So that's going to come out January or February 2022. Brilliant. So, yes. so, so the manuscript's kind of in and it's on its way. Yes. I just, it's just going into proof stage now. So, yeah. Exciting. Yes. Uh, look, I'm conscious that we are running out of time and I don't want to rob you of the opportunity to ask questions yourself. So I will open it to the floor if there's anyone has something they want to ask Christine. Yes. What's your writing routine? Where do you do it? What time of day? Um... Yeah, so I have to get up early because, you know, I had, uh, I still have one child in school, so I get up uh, probably about seven, and then because that's my quiet time, whether I'm in the mood or not, I have to get to work. So that's pretty much it. I have to say that um, the movie was, did take away a lot of the writing time because I had a lot of interviews and I had to go places mm. and uh, it's very hard. You can't just, you need a really quiet space for that. And then sometimes I had, um, because the book sold in different countries, my agent would send me some kind of tax form and then I have to contact New Zealand, what is it, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for Russia because to get permission <laughs> to have it, I have to do some kind of paper and certify this. So sometimes I felt like I became a kind of tax person, but that <laughs> normally would be my routine is just uh, try to go from seven. Um, I try now to also get something where I go outdoors and walk because before I used to just sit, sit, sit and I realized you actually have to take care of yourself physically and move and that's actually helped me uh, have a fresher writing routine. Just go out, get some fresh air and come back and then I actually see things more clearly. So, yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Another question at the back there, yes? Yeah. Um, I didn't know anything about you until last night. I had a 
show last night, but I thought were extraordinary. But I knew nothing about you. I suppose everybody else here does. But you want to tell us how you started off and how you went, what made you change your places you did to get to Nelson? Because it's obviously been a big change. Yes. So. Um I think, why did you come to New Zealand in, in, oh, in Nelson? Okay, Was yeah. That, so yes. why New Zealand initially? Uh, uh, you mean uh, born, birth? Okay, so I'm born to an Italian mother and a Belgian father, and I was born in Hartford, Connecticut. And then we went back to Belgium, so there was a period where we were going you know, back and forth. And then when I was a teenager, I went back to um, France. So I grew up, I had some time in Europe, some time um, in New England in the States, some time in Florida. And then I, as soon as I was a teenager, then I just was settled. And I did my studies. I came back to the U.S., but I was basically in Europe a long time. And... Um, yeah, I hadn't really ever wanted to do a PhD initially, um, but we were dying to come to New Zealand. <laughs> and just, we were going to apply, and normally I had a master's degree, and we would have been able to come. And the rule changed just the month we did it, and then suddenly it was a kind of point system. And so my husband or I would have had to have a job here before being allowed to come. So we were looking, how could we, you know, how could we do that? And then I looked and I saw, okay, I could do a PhD. And I saw, that's quite interesting, actually. Why not do, you know, a PhD? And we had both fallen in love with, I fell in love with New Zealand first. And, you know, I had seen a documentary quite a long time ago, and it had said, I'd love to get my hands on this French documentary, it said that New Zealand was barely inhabited. Relatively speaking, that's probably true. That this was 1990, and that people were still living in the bush, and at that stage, <laughs> <laughs> and at that stage, I felt, you know, I really wanted to escape someplace far away, someplace, uh, you know, that was English speaking, and I thought I'd be ready to live like that. <laughs> you know, so well, I, dear, you must have been disappointed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I looked, and I remember I saw buildings. the New Zealand immigration website. Well, actually, I saw Spirits Bay first in the landscape, and my jaw dropped. I said, can there be a place that beautiful? You know, I kept looking at the images. Then I said, okay, the country, I've never seen something so beautiful in my life, but what are the people like? So I actually <laughs> wanted to listen to the accent, and I heard, and I saw on the website that there was a very particularly Kiwi sense of humor, which I loved. I said, they're, they're humble, and they have some kind of self-deprecating humor. And then I listened to the accent. I said, I love that accent. Apparently, <laughs> formers, you know, people do. And I said, that's like... Um, it sounded to me British, but on holiday, happy and relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice. So then the tricky part was to convince my husband. And so my husband went on something called Frogs in New Zealand because he's French. And the French usually are very, very critical. And he went through the website and he said every post had nothing but good to say about New Zealand. He said, OK, that sounds good. <laughs> if the French are saying it's that great. That's brilliant. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully he didn't yeah. regret it once he got no, here. <laughs> no. But when we did arrive at Te Papa, the first thing they did is they said, they said, oh, French, come and let us show you the Rainbow Warrior exhibition. Oh. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Diplomacy. Yeah, and, and his first uh, job interview, <laughs> they brought up the Rainbow oh, Warrior. Wow. <laughs> As a joke, okay. you know, to break the ice. <laughs> yes, another question here. How did you arrive at the title Cajun Skies? That's an interesting question because it wasn't the first title. The first title was Five Poems for Elsa because I had Johannes write five poems according to his maturity. And no one was wanting to publish it in English at first. Um, 
And so my agent had shown it to Planeta, which are the seventh biggest publisher, but because the language is, you know, so widespread Spanish. And Berta Noy, who I thanked immensely, even after the film and everything, she took the risk because she said, we never publish, we have a policy, we never publish a book before it's been published in your own language. But she said, this is the most important book I've read in 10 years, I'm publishing this. And I'm so grateful because I think to myself, maybe if she hadn't given me the chance, who knows, maybe nothing would have ever happened. And she said to me, listen, I have a problem. She said, it's not that five poems for L's is bad. She said, it's not. She said, but it's more, <laughs> it's more a title which would have gone, it would have been popular in the era the book takes place. <laughs> so the 1940s. <laughs> so she said, you need to find something else. Could you find it in the next few days? I'm like, oh my goodness. So I remember I wrote all these titles. I found this the other day. So I wrote title, 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 title. And then I showed it to her and she said, Caging Skies. So she was the one who picked it. And, um, and then, you know, that worked. And she said, I think it just has everything, you know, that it means to me. And so she did it. In Amber's Wake, that one took a long, long time to, to find as well. That was, those were the two books. That, the other ones, I had the title before. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard to have a written work and to try to find some title. And you have to keep reading your own book, you know, <laughs> for the thousandth time. And I'm finding nothing. And then, you know, you, you go to the dictionary. So I find something, or I found some good titles, and each time I look, someone else took that one, someone else has that one, someone, great, I know, that one's taken. And it seems like now, because you can publish online, it seems like almost every title's been taken. And then I found an Amber's Wake, and I actually asked some people, you know, which one, do, do you like this mm -hmm. one or this one? And everyone seemed to like an Amber's Wake, so I said, okay, good. Because it must be important, that. right? I mean, that's what you see on the bookshelf, and that's one yeah, of the things that attracts you to the book. I yeah, guess. it yeah. is important, and you have to like it, you know, mm. yourself, and you don't want to. Although I found that um, sometimes when you have a translation, they do change the title to something else. And what I didn't know is some of the translation in some of the countries, they actually even changed my name. So some of the Eastern European countries, I became uh, Kirsten uh, Lunen. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> didn't know they were, but that's the law of their country because oh. they want to keep everything uniform in that country. So they would, you know, change my name to that. And that seems to me a bit bizarre, almost counterproductive what the novel's trying to say as yeah, a message, yeah, yeah. you know, diversity is okay. And exactly. Yeah. Uh, look, we probably have time for one more question. I think there was the one over here. Oh, no. Okay, everyone's going to try on me. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> Look, thank you so much um, for that, Christine. That was absolutely f fascinating and um, fantastic, and I'm sure we've all enjoyed it, and I'd love for you to join me in thanking yes. Christine. I, yeah, and I want to oh, thank you so much. And I would like to thank everyone too. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you all mm. for coming. And thank you to the Marlboro Book Festival. I, my husband works in events now, so I know how much work this represents and how many people have to be involved and how many sponsors and, you know, the huge complexity that goes into this. So, you know, a huge thank you to all for supporting this. Absolutely. And Christine will be um, outside. There will be books available to buy and she will be there for, um, for signings. Okay. Okay, thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Thank you. That was Christine Lunens speaking to Nikki McDonald at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival. 
A big thanks to all the writers that have supported the festival, as well as the audiences that have attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more about this year's event, head over to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening.